Cadence Productions. Before we begin, a warning. This podcast contains descriptions of sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. And it's worth noting that in this episode, we are journeying alongside Ruby into the online sex trafficking den, where she was held against her will all those years ago. If you can, though, stay with it. Hope and light and a whole lot of joy is coming around the corner. I wonder if everyone has a birthday they remember, one they don't want to forget, no matter how many years pass. For Ruby, it's the year she turns seven. Early in the morning, her father wakes her. He has a surprise. Ruby's father has made her a boat. And it's not a toy. It's a real boat. The boat is wooden, hand-carved, simple but beautiful. Even better than what it looks like is the feeling she gets when she thinks about him making it. How many hours of work did it take, late into the night, after finishing up on the farm, with his bare hands, and for his youngest daughter, for her. But the best bit of all is still to come. As she moves closer, she sees that the boat has a word carved into the side. Not a word, a name. It's her name. That day, Ruby with her parents and her older brother travel to a local waterfall, a favourite family spot to unwind. For what seems like hours, Ruby's brother paddles them in the boat under the open sky. They splash in the fresh water, breathe in the fresh air. They are together. It is peaceful, calm. Ruby has never felt safer than she does right now. Never more loved. Ruby has never felt more known. The men on the other end of the camera unwrap Ruby with their eyes, like she is their present, and they do it again and again and again. It is Ruby's turn on duty. She's been working for seven hours and still has another hour to go before her shift is finished. She wishes she could open a window, let in some air, a little bit of light. But the windows in the duty room are locked shut, just like everywhere else in the house, covered with thick curtains. The only light comes from the computer screens, Screens that, it seems, never turn off, never rest. Like the girls who must perform in front of them. The men, the strangers, far away across oceans, watch her, see her, consume her. They tell her how to move her body like she is a puppet, and they pull the strings. But she isn't a puppet. She's a 16-year-old girl. The appetite of the men who watch her is unquenchable. They want to see everything. They demand it. Ruby is exposed, on display, broadcast across continents, over and over again, day after day, 
hour after hour. Ruby has never felt more forgotten, never felt more trapped, never felt more alone. Ruby knows only one thing. She must get out before she disappears altogether. From Cadence Productions, this is Finding Ruby. I put it on the altar, was A true story of loss and trauma at the hands of one of the world's fastest growing crimes. But also a story of triumph, of rescue and resilience. This is the story of 16-year-old Ruby, thrown into the fight of her life, and of those who have chosen to come alongside her and make it the fight of their lives too. Episode two, The Trap. The GPS is saying we're about three minutes away. As I mentioned in episode one, in researching this story, we wanted to retrace Ruby's steps. This, we hope, will help us more fully bring to life the reality of what happened to Ruby. Part of this involved tracking down the house where she was kept. So, bundling up in a van, we hit the streets of Pampanga to go and see what Ruby would have seen all those years ago. I bet we're about um, 500 metres away now. There's a few of us in the van. One of those people is Lydia Bowden from IJM. We were both really stunned when we saw the house that we had heard so much about. You can hear it in our voices. All right, we're just coming up onto the house now. Lydia, can you describe it to me? Yeah, so it's a really run-down uh, house. Big metal gate. Actually a large cage in the front with a big dog. Um, difficult to see inside, but I can see uh, a few windows. Oh, it's just generally very run-down. We've taken a few photos of the house so you can see it too. These are uploaded on the show's website. I'd recommend taking a look. It's amazing how it helps you realize just how real this story is. Of course, for Ruby, this wasn't just a story. This was her reality, her new life. Seeing it, it feels like it kind of, her story really comes to life. When you think about her feeling like there was no escape yeah. Yeah, it's very sad, actually. Very sad. Yeah, and it's, it is completely off the beaten track. So she wouldn't have known where she was when she was brought here. If she wasn't from here, which she wasn't, the confusion of all the side streets just getting here, if she had been able to escape, she wouldn't have known where to go.
It is late at night on Wednesday the 8th of May, 2013, when Ruby first walks through the door of that house. From the darkness of the street, she enters the darkness of a hallway. She is confused as the door is locked behind her and then her phone taken from her. Though this is a far bigger building than her house back in the country, the space feels heavier, close. As her eyes adjust, she sees half-naked girls wandering around. Silent, ethereal, almost ghost-like. This is not a computer shop, as she had been told. And in a flash, she realises where she is, and that everything she's been told, everything she acted upon, has been based on a lie. She's heard about places like this, in school, briefly. But they always seemed far away and distant. Something a girl like her would never have to even contemplate. Except now here she is. Ruby has landed, without ever intending to, in the middle of her worst nightmare. Nadine is not in the house, so Ruby has no one to complain to or talk her realisation over with. Instead, the man tells her to go to sleep, and in the morning she can talk to Nadine. She is led to the bedroom, where she sees four other girls. They look up at Ruby, but only fleetingly, before they quickly turn away. The room is not a bedroom so much as a blank space. Mattresses are scattered, haphazardly, messily across the floor. There are no wardrobes or dresses. Nothing seems permanent or even semi-permanent. Even the walls are a stark, bare white. The only things that you could see on that room was actually um, the mattresses, the pillows, the blankets, and um, some of our things that was um, placed in a bag. The room actually had a window, but the window um, was actually covered uh, with a thick curtain, and we are not actually allowed to open that window or even to, you know, peep outside the window. Ruby tries to talk with the other girls, but they don't speak to her. They are silent. Even the young child of eight or nine. Ruby's first and strongest instinct is to call for help to anyone, anywhere, who can help her. Except she can't. It's like they have stolen her voice. And the door, the door through which she entered, the only door in the entire house is now locked from the outside too. And it is watched over and guarded by the man who brought her through it. And so, Ruby sits on a mattress in that dark, blank room, surrounded by girls, but feeling entirely alone. How is she meant to sleep? When she lies down, the weight of all the unanswered questions almost crush her, 
She feels just how thick the web of lies is, and just how enmeshed she has already become, unwillingly, unwittingly stuck in its centre. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that was actually, um, I could say, the darkest moment of my life, Rich, actually. So um, I thought, I was thinking um, to myself that I've brought myself here. I, I cannot blame anyone or I cannot blame like other people because it was my decision and um, that I was tricked and I fall into that trap. Morning eventually arrives, and with it, Nadine. They brought me in that room where there were computers and cameras and um, web cameras. And um, I saw there, uh, I saw girls there that like performing, doing sexual acts. And I asked them if I'm going to be doing the same thing. And um, they told me yes. Ruby is angry and she makes this known. Told her right away that I don't want to disrupt. This is not what we've talked to. Um, I want to go back to my province. Nadine listens to Ruby. She seems to hear her. She tells Ruby that sure, she can leave. But first she has to do something for them. And uh, when I asked, you know, of course, when I was like uh, trying to back out from what we agreed with, uh, that's when they told me that um, I could leave... Uh, I could not leave unless I paid off that fair debt, uh, uh, the fair money they gave. And do you remember how much that fair money was? Around 4,000 to 5,000 pesos. That's around 80 US dollars. Ruby didn't have any money though. So they told her she needs to work it off. I said I'll be I'll be working for you for like um, a short time until I can uh, pay what I owe you but it was impossible to pay for uh, what she sent me Ruby is determined to quickly pay off her fare and put this whole nightmare behind her but there is a catch she has very little control over how she spends her money Without access to the outside world, Ruby depends solely on those who hold her for her food and the basics of survival. These come at a heavily inflated cost. So um, she sold everything to me, like from my food, uh, from my toiletries and everything. You couldn't go out to buy your needs. You have to buy it from her. And... She sell it very. She sell it in a very high price too, to make it impossible for you to to pay for what you owe. So it's like a um, bait. Yeah, it's a trap. Yeah, it's a trap. I'm just going to pause here because this is actually a really important part of Ruby's story. 
I'm not sure if you picked up how many times Ruby used the word impossible when describing the situation she found herself in. This tactic of being tricked into a debt that you simply cannot pay off is a brutal trick used all over the world to enslave people, often for generations. The longer you work, the more you actually owe your captors. As mentioned in episode one, Nadine and Pedro were some of the pioneers of the online sexual exploitation of children, blending this crime with traditional sex trafficking. And it seemed they felt they needed to add this debt bondage aspect too, economically enslaving those they had already physically locked up. Uh, for, for example, in a day, you will be eating three times a day. So they will be charging you 250 pesos every meal. So if you can afford to starve yourself, then you might have a lesser um, amount to pay to them. So the way to reduce your debt is to not eat. Yes. As early as her first day in the house, Ruby is expected to begin her duties. Nadine explains her role, adding some advice that immediately blurs the boundaries between the professional and the personal in a very disturbing way. So the expectation that was actually set for me when I was talking with the boss um, actually is that I have to work for eight hours every day. Like, yeah, eight hours every day. And um, she was actually, uh, she actually told me that at first you would really be shy. You would really be hesitant to do what the customers are telling you to do. But over time, you will be used to it. You will love it. So those were her lines. (laughs) If in doubt, Ruby is told to copy one of the more experienced girls in the house. The 19-year-old, comfortable and confident in front of the camera, is unbelievably held up as something of an exemplar, as someone to aspire, to emulate, to become. There was actually this girl who is very, um, you know, who who had learned to um, love what she is doing in front of the camera. So um, the boss was actually encouraging us to... um, imitate her or to do it like she does. I'm sorry. The schedule in the house is rigid and comes with high expectations for any workplace. The girls are made to work eight hours a day, performing private shows for 15 to 20 customers. They must earn at least $50, they are told. They work in shifts over 24 hours. The computers never go to sleep. There are two rooms set aside for this work. A chat room to get to know customers in, and then, when a customer wishes to be alone, the quote-unquote duty room, a private space to break off into. Except it isn't really private. The boss is present here. Even from a distance, the girls are watched and monitored, and if someone doesn't know what to say or do, 
the boss willingly steps in and plays her part. So there were this um, application that was installed on that computer that uh, where she could monitor everything that we do, everything that we say to the customer. And if she wants, um, she can actually, um, instead of you moving the cursor, she can actually uh, be the one moving it and she can actually be the one talking to the customer if for example you don't know how to uh, to talk with that customer if for example you don't know what to say or what to do she would actually take over and pretend to be you just to keep that customer over the first week or so ruby starts to learn who's who in the house ruby learns that nadine is one half of a husband wife team nadine and pedro Ruby will deal almost entirely with Nadine for the time of her stay. The husband and wife do not live there, though they visit often. Nadine and Pedro have a separate life outside the business of the house. And eventually, Ruby learns something surprising about them. Nadine and Pedro are also parents. How does Ruby learn this? Well, one day when they visit their house, they bring their young son along with them. Like it's all completely normal. Uh, the child was actually just three or five years old, but I saw that uh, boy, and it just gave me shivers because they're actually exposing to that young child what they are doing already. So the child was actually seeing those girls who were half naked, coming um, like coming out from those rooms. I don't know how they're explaining it to. To their, to their child or to their kid. But as far as I could remember, the, um, those things were already exposed to that kid, as young as he was. In addition to Nadine and Pedro, there are a few other adults who ensure the house and the girls are kept in order. There is the man who Ruby met at the depot, the one who brought her there. He also cooks and guards them, Ruby calls him the houseboy. We'll do the same in this podcast. For most of the time, he is more of a background figure, present in a shadowy sort of way. Later, however, this shadow will come to play a crucial role in letting in the light. There is another man too who visits. He is a crucial part of the day-to-day system as he is the one to check on the computer equipment to make sure all the machines are running and no customers are left waiting on the other side. His name is Kiko. He's the tech guy. And there is one other person in the foreground, a central figure in the house with Ruby and the girls that they cannot miss. She is like the second in charge, the 2IC. Ruby calls her the boss's right hand. She is a bit older than the other girls, in her late twenties, Ruby guesses. Ruby's description of her is chilling. She was a very hard person to approach, was very straightforward, talk about money all the time, talks about time management, talks about performance, um, talks about implementing rules inside of that house. And those rules? It doesn't take long for Ruby to learn that there are lots of them. Strange new rules. To conceal and embed them further in the web. 
and not taking them seriously, not obeying, comes with severe consequences, as Ruby soon finds out. Um, one of the house rules for uh, that was, you know, explained to me was that, like, I was not expected to open any of those windows, to peep outside the window, and whenever you like um, disobey or you know violate one of those house rules, you will be paying an amount of five hundred pesos or more than that. Wow! So if you opened a window, you have to pay five hundred pesos. Yes, you are like penalized for that, for every violation. And so Ruby, who loves to learn, quickly learns things she wished she didn't know. She learns that there are rules, but that they don't make sense. And that rather than protecting her, they keep her from being protected. She learns to watch and emulate others, even as she despises the very actions they commit. She learns that there are questions that cannot be answered, and answers to questions that should never be asked. She learns about the dark power of lies over the truth, and that there are people who take and take and take and never give. She learns how deep she has fallen into the web, and if she is going to get out, it will take everything she's got and more. There is one way out of the house, but it is not an escape so much as another form of entrapment. Every so often when the tech guy Kiko visits the house to fix the computers, he does other tasks, like taking the girls' photos. For passports, they are told, in case one of their clients ever wants to meet in person, in case they need to go elsewhere. The night Ruby arrives at the concrete house in Pampanga, there are 12 girls that are staying there. In the morning, when she wakes, six girls have left, disappeared. Where have they gone? Nobody seems to know, least of all Ruby. The youngest child has left. Is this good or bad? Ruby learns later that Nadine and Pedro own other such businesses. Again, Nadine and Pedro were entrepreneurs. It was 2013, OSEC was relatively new, and it appears they were continuing to experiment with different business ventures. But it is important to note that this is really unusual, especially today. Pedro and Nadine are in fact quite different to what we would unfortunately call typical OSEC traffickers today. Now. What do I mean by that? Well, back then, this kind of trafficking was done by quote-unquote professionals, like Pedro and Nadine. But since then, it seems that mums and dads, uncles and aunties, regular people, have realised that they too can make money using the internet with what they have at their disposal. The children in their care. I guess it's kind of like the Uber or Airbnb version of the industry. I'm just going to stop and let that settle for a second. Because if you're like me, 
This is perhaps the hardest aspect of the online sexual exploitation of children to understand. Parents, uncles, aunties, adults in places of trust, custodians of a child's innocence, are selling their children online. Remember Colonel Sheila from episode one? Here she is again talking about the difference between OSEC and traditional sex trafficking. In OSEC, it's hard to believe, but it happens at the very confines of their home. That even the neighbors would not be actually be aware that there is an ongoing abuse in that um, house. And then the saddest part is that for the facilitators for commercial sex trafficking, they're actually the um, floor managers or the bar owners. But for OSEC, somebody who has a trusting relationship with a child. So it can be her mother, her father, sibling, a relative, or a close neighbor. That the child entrusts herself in doing what is demanded of her. Would you believe even a two-month-old baby was already used by a mother for a live streaming sex show. The crime of OSEC is evolving, but we're constantly seeing that crime being committed in the confines of the homes of the children. They can't leave the house. They're trapped inside the house with their very own abusers. That last voice you heard was attorney Kath, a lawyer. You'll meet her in the next episode. We're going to spend quite a bit of time getting to know her as she becomes crucial to Ruby's story. I'm a dad myself. I have three delightful young girls. This is some audio of us playing Lego. You know, even putting this audio on here makes me feel very uncomfortable, exposing even the sound of their voices to an unknown online audience. It goes against the natural instinct I have to keep them protected. So when it comes to this topic of OSEC, honestly for me, this is the hardest part. To me, there is simply nothing more abhorrent than the thought of selling your own child online. I'm guessing you probably feel the same. So why are these parents doing this? How are they able? In travelling to the Philippines, that was right there at the top of the questions I wanted answered. And I came in with a hypothesis that I wanted to prove. My hypothesis went something like this. The reason I cannot empathise at all with these parents that I could never imagine doing this is because I am not in the same position of poverty as they are. I have not felt the desperation that they must feel in having to feed themselves and their family. And perhaps, as unimaginable as it is, were I in the same situation, I might consider the same solution. The question is, is that true? Is OSEC a crime of poverty, born out of desperation? Ideally, I would get to ask someone who'd actually been arrested for it. And to my great surprise, I would get the chance to do just that. You see, I was invited one day to visit Colonel Sheila at the Philippine National Police Headquarters in Manila. 
it is a huge compound. The Women and Children Protection Centre, where Colonel Sheila works, has its own on-site jail. She asked me, after we had finished chatting, if I wanted to visit the jail and perhaps talk to an accused trafficker for myself. I really wasn't expecting that. So as we walked down to the jail building, I found myself quite nervous. The jail is the size of like a three bedroom apartment. There are five main rooms, two cells, each about six meters squared. One guards room, just outside the door to the cells, one interrogation room, and one really cute child-friendly room. This child-friendly room was Colonel Sheila's idea. After the, the rescue, this is where we put um, the children so that they can rest um, because um, the trauma of being separated from the, the parents. At least this one is comforting for them. Uh, we tell them stories, we, we let them play, uh, and then um, as a bonus, whenever we will already turn them over to the shelter, we ask them to choose one toy and one book to take them uh, with them. Can you believe this one came from Amsterdam? Oh, yeah, wow. brought, uh, sent by the Dutch police. <laughs> We've seen this project. Like, hey, okay, I'll send you some of my uh, If you're curious to see it for yourself, we've got some pictures up on the show website from that visit. And then it came time for me to talk to one of the inmates. Now, I imagined I would talk to them through the bars, but then the guards called for the inmate. She was led out of the cell and into the interrogation room. And then I was sat directly opposite her. I felt like I was in a cop show. Here's the audio from that interview. I've edited out her name. Sorry about the jumps. Okay. Hello. Hello. <laughs> How long have you been in here for? Uh, I started 10 months last, 26. You've been in here for 10 months? Yes. Oh, wow. Why are you here? Because I'm being arrested for the case of anti-trafficking and child pornography. Because we have to eat food for us, my family. I need to do this. I need to do that. That's why I'm here. Mm. I lost my job this pandemic. That's why I I that's why I tried this crime. That's why I did this crime because of pandemic. I have no work. I need to earn money because I have many. I have many responsibility. I have many. Sister, my family, my nephew, I raised them. Did you catch that last bit? I needed to do the crime because I need to put food on the table. So does this mean that my hypothesis that this is a crime of poverty was right? Or is it just an excuse? A way to justify a heinous action? I asked Colonel Sheila what she thought. 
Just a note, she refers here to local traffickers as mother facilitators. Facilitator is another commonly used term for trafficker in the Philippines. There are also mother facilitators who can actually, who actually coerce the child, putting guilt on her that if we're not going to do this, um, your baby uh, sibling will not have milk for tonight. So they're saying, they're saying to their children, if you don't do this, we don't eat, or your little brother doesn't eat. Is that true? Of course not. <laughs> uh, we've been raiding their homes with a lot of not the necessity um, items in their homes, big screen TV, air conditioning units. And these are not um, reflective of their uh, poverty. I guess bottom line is that they lack moral fiber. I am a parent. I will never do such a thing. Um, a parent will not actually allow a fly or a mosquito to, to bite um, her daughter. And how come these mothers can actually abuse, sexually abuse, destroying the future of their children? Remember Caleb Carroll from episode one? Here's his take on it. So when, when people call it a crime of poverty, um, I think most people probably mean well when they say that. But, but that doesn't appropriately nuance this crime. So there are hundreds of thousands of men and women in the Philippines in, in abject poverty, and millions of men and women, mothers and fathers, around the world in abject poverty that do not sexually abuse and exploit their children. And I think when we say that poverty has driven these people to exploit their children. I, I personally feel that that's a slap in the face to those people that do everything they can to protect their children, despite the poverty that they're in. I don't know about you, but that certainly changed my mind. OSEC cannot be categorized as a crime of poverty because there are many who daily experience poverty who would never do such a thing. So what is it then? Caleb prefers, in fact, to call OSEC a crime of enrichment. So, um, in a really depraved way, it's just global economics. So let's say a trafficker did three shows in a day, three or four days a week, they would make a month's salary in less than a week. So you're not, you're, I mean, that in itself points to us that, that this isn't crime about enrichment, right? That they continue. And then the other thing we know is that, um, and this is in IJM's study that was released last year, without government intervention, people don't stop trafficking in OSEC. So it's not like these people get to a point where they say, oh, we've made enough money to provide for our family. We're going to stop exploiting these children. They keep doing it. So those things to me all point towards that, that this is a crime of trafficking and exploitation. Still, it's hard to understand, isn't it? I mean, selling your own child, how can you convince yourself that that's an okay thing to do? Okay, so um, 
In the previous operations that we've conducted, uh, I was actually curious and um, in one of those episodes wherein um, I talked to these mother facilitators, I actually asked the same questions to them. And um, one answer that was given to me was that they were able to convince her daughter to do OSEC by explaining that the abuse will not actually be done by the customer who's just watching on screen, but it, it, it will be done by the mother. So the mother would actually um, convey us lessening the impact of the trauma to the child. But of course, we all know that's not true. That's an interesting point and an excuse I kept hearing over and over on both sides. The expectation is not really real. It's all virtual. But as we will discover in future episodes, though the abuse is done online, the damage is very much felt in reality. And apparently sometimes it takes getting caught to realise this. Actually, sorry, I'm also a human being. Actually, I would usually tell them, how can you do this? I am a mother myself. And then they would break down and yes, I know, yes, I know. And then I hope um, my kids will find a way to forgive me from what I've done to them. Um, we also informed them of the, the effects to the children of the, what they have done. And that's why we explained to them why the kids are being taken into the shelter so that they will be given psychosocial intervention to come out from this trauma as a whole again. We found out later, as we rummaged through documents, that Nadine's initial message to Ruby on Facebook was not random. She was a target. From what we can gather, Nadine sent one of her girls to recruit someone else into the job. Our assumption is that Nadine offered to clear her debt if she could find someone to replace her. The girl must have been desperate to find a replacement. She just needed to find someone vulnerable enough to fall into a similar trap that she was ensnared in. Now, this girl has a cousin, and that cousin went to school with Ruby. It appears that when this girl heard about Ruby's parents' death, and the fact that Ruby was now alone, she identified her as a target and gave Nadine her details. Nadine then knew just the right words and false promises to make to pull her in. July 1st, 2013. Pampanga, the Philippines. There is something about the passing of time in that online sex trafficking den. It weighs. The weight is especially heavy in a space without sunlight, without air, without any other view but the same darkness day after day. In the beginning, even though Ruby knows that the odds are stacked against her, she still keeps a close eye on her earnings, hoping bit by bit to save enough to get out to make her way back home. A month passes, and then a couple of weeks. The money she planned to earn slips like sand through her fingers. In fact, though she keeps a tally, she is still yet to actually be paid. 
the hope of escape is becoming less and less of a goal and more of a desperate, unattainable dream. Ruby notices the effect of this in the girls around her, particularly those who have been there the longest, some for several years. They become hardened into a state of near numbness. They believe the false narratives they are told. It seems they do not long for escape because they no longer even believe it is for their own good. They are telling them that um, whenever there will be rescue operations or, you know, uh, raids, um, those girls, especially those ones who are still underaged, um, they actually uh, told them not to disclose any of their uh, real identities because um, they told them that the police would imprison them along with their families because, you know, their families allowed them to work there. So that's their way um, planting fear in those minds of those girls. Until now, Ruby has done what she has been told. She has worked to earn her money, or at least tried to, under the agreement made with Nadine when they first met. She has followed the rules of the house. She has said yes to the unspeakable things asked of her. And yet, still she is no closer to paying off her debt. And the work she is asked to do is not just uncomfortable, it is inhuman. A deep resentment wells up inside her. I uh, develop more hatred towards uh, those bosses that I had because they are uh, telling or they are saying that it's an opportunity for us to earn money. But actually, um, they were the ones who are earning while, you know, exploiting us with those customers. Everyone has their limit, and one evening, Ruby reaches hers. The customer on the other side of the screen has asked one of Ruby's colleagues, another young girl, to perform an act that is simply too much to ask. The young girl cannot. But the customer insists, and so the boss turns to Ruby and orders her to do the act instead. With the eyes of her boss and her customer on her, Ruby asserts the only power she has left. She says, no. No to the customer. No to Nadine. No to the violation of her body. No. But saying no comes with consequences. Nadine repays Ruby's no with her own. And it is loud and clear and bone-achingly cruel. She starved me for the night. She didn't give me any blanket, any mattress to sleep on. Um, it was actually, it wasn't just actually for a night that I was starved. I was actually starved the next day also. So it was like fasting with no water and with no food. So I slept there shivering, crying all night. I don't know. I was 
I didn't had any hope. This was the cost for saying her body was worth more than they used it for. This was the cost for fighting for her dignity. For a moment, she contemplates ending her life, but something deep within her pushes back. Now she must keep living, but if she is to continue to live, it cannot be in here, in the darkness. Like the smothering blinds that keep the daylight out, she can see how too much time here has treated the other girls, smothering the last traces of hope, of opposition. Ruby comes to realise one thing for sure. She must escape. She has no choice. Ruby hatches a plan in her head. She thinks about the distance from the front door to the street. She thinks about how to make the most noise in the house to alert a passerby that she was inside and in trouble. She just has to wait for the right opportunity, for the right moment to strike. Days later, that opportunity comes. It comes with the sound of sporadic sirens. The police are in the area. They are close. They could help her. They just need to hear her. This is her chance. Summoning all her courage, she charges toward the front door, the closest part of the house to the street, and she screams with all her might. So I started to, uh, I ran to the front door, I started to, to bang the door and to yell outside like, um, if, if somebody could hear me, please get me out of here. On the next episode of Finding Ruby. That is a typical story that they can think of a time in their life when they could never have imagined getting sexually involved in images of children. Finding Ruby is a pro bono passion project of Cadence, a creative agency for good in Sydney, Australia. We believe Ruby's is a story that needs to be heard for all our sakes. If you agree and want to help, you can do so in two ways. Firstly, you can take a moment to rate and review the podcast. This helps other people organically find it. Secondly, you can help us advertise Finding Ruby. On average, it costs about $5 in advertising spend to bring in a new listener. If you want to pay it forward and help us reach a wider audience, we would be very grateful for the help. You can do so via our website, findingruby.com. This podcast is written and edited by Nikki Florence Thompson and me, Rich Thompson. Sound design and mix by me and Brendan Ridley. Our theme song is Homeland by Searching for Light. A special thanks to Lydia Bowden, Evelyn Pingle, Meryl Sarko, Lani Alano and all the team at IJM Philippines for opening the doors to us. And of course, a big thanks to Ruby for telling her story. We'll see you on the next episode.